If you have a Bible, take it and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we're continuing to uh, think on John the Baptist and uh, who he was and what we might learn from him and the way that he pointed to Christ. And we'll be in verses 15 through 20 uh, this morning. I have, uh, I have a, a scissor. It's not a pair of scissors, this is a, a scissor. Um, and it's fairly useless, isn't it? I mean, just one scissor doesn't accomplish anything. What, what do I need? I need the other half, right? And, and believe it or not, I actually have... Have you ever seen the scissors that come apart? Kitchen scissors? There we go. So now, these scissors are, are now effective, correct? Because they have they have both. Well, by themselves, they're, they're somewhat useless. I'm sure I could kind of saw away at something if I wanted to, but they're, they're not as useless. You, you need... You need both. Both are necessary for this to be effective and, and efficient in accomplishing the task of cutting things. Um, that's a really silly illustration, but it was the best I could come up with. Um, th- this morning we're looking at John the Baptist. We're thinking about uh, two characteristics that we see in John the Baptist that sometimes we think are opposed to each other that are actually necessary for us to walk in faithfulness to Christ. You can't have one and not the other. If you have one and not the other, then, then there are issues. You're not as effective. We don't glorify God in the same way that we would if, if both are present. John was a bold man. John spoke uh, with conviction. We can see him standing on the edge of the Jordan or in the Jordan and just hear his voice proclaiming loudly with conviction what he believed. But John also, and we don't often think of him this way, was a humble man. He was a man whose life was all about pointing to Christ. It was all about him decreasing and Christ increasing. And so the two characteristics that we're thinking about are boldness and humility. Boldness and humility. You can have someone that's extremely bold and authoritative, but if they lack humility, then no one really wants to listen to them talk because they speak with such boldness and, and strength that it, it's, it's hard to hear them because there's no, there's no humility in their lives. But sometimes people are humble, but humble to a fault, humble and, and so meek in a way that, that, that they never stand for anything, that, that they are blown around like, like leaves in the wind, and they're never solid. And, and so Jesus calls us to lives of humble boldness. I don't know if that's the right grammatically way to say it, but maybe that'll help it stick in our heads. Jesus calls us to lives of humble boldness, to combine both of those. You may be here and you consider yourself to be bold. You say you're bold in your speech, you're bold in your actions, but maybe you lack humility, you lack the appropriate meekness that needs to be in your life. We need both of those things. Or, or maybe, uh, like me, I think I would fall more on the humble and meek side. Not saying I'm, I'm more humble, but humble to a fault. Humble of thinking too lowly of things. And not, not standing up, not being bold when I need to be, not proclaiming truth when I need to be, but cowering sometimes in, in fear. And I need to grow in boldness. And John the Baptist here shows us the need for both. The, the call to live lives of humble boldness. So let's read together in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20, and then we'll think about three characteristics of lives that have both humility and boldness. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you 
with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Jesus calls us to lives of humble boldness. As we look at this passage, I think the first thing that we see is that a life of humble boldness points to Jesus. A life of humble boldness points to Jesus. When we Last week we considered John's entrance uh, onto the, the scene of history. It was in the darkness of this power-hungry, highly politicized age, and he, came, he comes crashing out of the Judean wilderness and stands at the edge of the Jordan River, and he proclaims this, this message of preparation. He calls people to repent. He says, you need to turn from your sins. You need to turn back to God. You need to be baptized as a sign of this change in your life. And he calls the crowds to, to prepare for the coming Messiah by saying, in the way that they would prepare is by saying no to sin and by saying yes to walking in holiness and love. Not surprisingly, John causes quite a stir amongst the people of his day, especially the Jewish people of his day. And while there were certain people that, that rejected him, they said he's just some wild-eyed radical out in the middle of the, of the, the wilderness Many accepted what John was, was saying. And the crowd starts to come together. They accept his teaching wholeheartedly. And the, the text says that they were in expectation. The people were in expectation. They start asking questions. They start saying, you know, this guy, he's, he speaks with such boldness. Do you think that this could be the one that we're waiting for? Do you think that, this, that, that he might be the Messiah, that he might be the anointed one who's coming to, to set up God's kingdom on earth, to crush all of our enemies? In John's Gospel, we hear what the question is. Uh, John 1.19, the priests and the Levites who have been sent by the Pharisees come and they say, they ask John, they say, Who are you? <laughs> That's a great question, isn't it? Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? What do you say about yourself? That's a question that many of us would love to be asked. Well, let me tell you. I'll sit down and I will tell you all about myself. I'll tell you about who I am. Uh, we love to talk about ourselves, to expound on who we are. And here John has asked this question, and he's asked it by people that think he's the Messiah. Now, if there was ever a moment in your life where you might be prone uh, to self-exaltation, this is, is surely it. People come to you and say, we think that you're the Messiah. Tell us who you are. But John is very clear in his response to these questions. He says that he is not the Messiah. And he's also clear that the Messiah, he says, is much greater than him. John doesn't say, oh, you know, I'm not the Messiah, but you know, I'm a pretty big deal. I'm the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is later going to say about me that no one born among women is, is greater than, than me. You know, John doesn't say things like that. He, is, he says, me? No, no way. I am not the Messiah. He says, I'm not even worthy to take off the Messiah's shoes. Leon Morris gives us some insight, a commentator. He writes this, he says, Palestinian teachers were not paid, but pupils, students, used to show their appreciation with a variety of services. Uh, a rabbinic saying runs, quote, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal thong. 
untying the sandal thong was just too much. But John selects precisely this duty, which the rabbis regarded as too menial for a disciple, as that for which he was unworthy. This is genuine humility. So John says to them as they come, he says, you know the one thing that, that students of rabbis are, are forbidden to do because that's too low of a job? I'm not even worthy to do that for the one who is coming after me. It's just one more example that reminds us that, that John's entire life, while he was bold, he had this humility that was focused on pointing people away from himself and towards Christ. He never exalts himself, but rather he spends his whole life and all the influence he has in calling others to follow after Jesus and not him. We have some signs that we put out on, on Sunday mornings so that people know where to find us because we're kind of hidden up here in the back of the building, you know. And the signs, they're not overly glamorous. They're not even in color. They're, they're black and white. They don't, they don't light up. Um, and nobody pauses to look and admire these, these beautiful signs. People see the arrow pointing in the direction that they need to go, and they say, oh, that's where the church is, and they follow the sign. Nobody congregates and gathers around the sign. Uh, the sign is, is used for a purpose, and the purpose is to point people where to go. It has a purpose. It's not the focus. And John's life was a sign. It was a sign that cried out, don't, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. He is a, a finger pointing. In fact, there's a point where everyone's eyes are on John, and Jesus starts coming down to the Jordan. And what does John say? He says, behold, look, everyone turn around. Don't look at me anymore. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at the end of John 3, John's disciples come to him and they say, John, you know that guy you were telling us about that was coming? Jesus, everyone's following him. He's baptizing more people than you. And the implication is that they think that what John should do is go and get some of his followers back. They're following after Jesus. But what's John's response? John says, he's not upset about this. He responds, he says, I told you I'm not the Christ. He says, I am, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. He says, I am the best man at the wedding. If you walked away from a wedding and you said, wow, wasn't that best man the center of attention? Or he said, uh, didn't those groomsmen do a great job? That's what you say about the wedding. That's the first thing that comes to your mind. If that happens, then that wedding is a, is a complete failure. Because who's supposed to be the focus of the wedding? The bride and the groom are supposed to be the focus of the wedding. And the groomsmen and the best man, they're supposed to point away and to point towards the groom. The wedding is about the bride and the groom. Primarily it's about the bride, of course. But the groom is there as well, and he's important. Uh, and John says, he says, I'm just, I'm just a groomsman. And my joy is, is being like a sign, like this tattered wooden sign that just points to the groom. My joy is made complete. And then he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John makes it clear that, that a life of humble boldness points to Christ, it points to Jesus, which means it doesn't point to us. The focus of our lives is to take the focus off of us and place it on Jesus. The temptation we all face is that we want to be known, right? 
I mean, I want people to know who I am. We want to be the center of attention when we go to parties. We want our employer to take special notice of us. We want to be known. We get on Facebook, and, and they, it, it, it'll ask you. It says, tell us about what you are doing. Tell the world about how great you are, how smart, and how happy you are, and, and take pictures of your food and post it so everyone knows how good you eat. And you know, I mean, this is what Facebook is. It's, it's let's tell everyone how great our lives are. Now, pride is just, it's an evil that we always will deal with. And, and there's so many different ways that it can manifest itself. But the question that we have to ask is if we, like John, are, are willing to be forgotten. Are, are we willing to fade to the background? Are we willing to be unknown so that Christ might increase, so that he would be known? In your everyday life, whether it's at home or at work, whether you go to school, are you filled with joy at the thought that you might simply be a sign? You just might be someone that points to Jesus. And you could be forgotten completely. But if people see Jesus, then you're content. Not to get too specific, but I thought about our brothers training for ministry. You guys that desire to go to missions. Are you content to go on a foreign mission field and do the work of the ministry, the tough work of the ministry, and then just be completely forgotten? Would you be content to be known by no one else except your Heavenly Father, to do a work that leaves you ridiculed by society or maybe misunderstood, but that points people to Jesus? Is that is that enough to be forgotten, to just be a sign? I think about this in regards to our church, Grace Fellowship Church. Are we content to be a church that ministers to our city and to the ends of the, worth, of the earth and does it for the glory of Christ such that no one knows about who we are? That we never become a church that's that's really well recognized in Louisville, but yet we are pointing people to Jesus. Would we be content if for the rest of the life of this church that we are a place where people come and they grow in their faith for a little while and then they leave? Hasn't that been in some sense what we have been? And yet we are pointing people to Jesus and God is glorified. Are we content with that? If that's all that we are, I think we should be. If we can be a sign that points to Jesus and no one knows who we are, then we would be content with that. And if God blesses us with souls that come in, that our goal would not be to make a name for ourselves, but would be to make a name for God. This is, this is humble boldness. And how do we do that? We do it by recognizing who we are and recognizing who God is. This is what's, what, what John does, doesn't he? He says, I am not the Messiah, Jesus is, and he is so much higher than I am, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He has a correct perspective of who he is and who God is, and in light of that, it's not a problem for him to say, why would anyone want to come and look at me? Everyone needs to go and look at Christ. He knew who he was, he knew who Christ was, and he saw his sinfulness in light of Jesus' holiness, and he had no problem pointing others away from himself so that they would follow the Lamb of God. So I pray that we would that we would see our sin, that we would see our brokenness and our need before God, that we would recognize that we're not even worthy to lift our eyes to Him, and we would see Him in His exalted holiness, that He is the one true and living God. And then if we see that, then we'll have no problem spending our entire lives trying to be forgotten so that we might point people to Jesus. Jesus calls us to lives that are marked by humble boldness, and a life of humble boldness points to Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Not only that, but, but secondly, a life of humble boldness proclaims the whole gospel. It points to Jesus and it proclaims the whole gospel. Uh, we, it points to Jesus. We see that in the first part of John's response where he says, I baptize you with water, but one, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then in the second part, we see the whole gospel that he proclaims. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In the first part, he makes it clear that Jesus is a superior person to him. And now he makes it clear that Jesus does a superior work to his work. Or as John puts it, he has a superior baptism. John was not the only baptizer. Jesus was also a baptizer. Uh, John sums up his ministry. He says, I baptize you with water. Period. That's, that's what I do. I baptize you with water. It's this message of, of preparation. This baptism was intended to be a sign of repentance that prepared people's hearts for the coming of the Messiah. In contrast, John says that there's another baptizer coming. Jesus is coming, and he's going to baptize you in a different way. And his baptism is greater because he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire, or in the Spirit and in fire. Now, what in the world does that mean? Let's talk about the Spirit first. He's going to baptize us with or in the Spirit. This refers to, to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that begins at the point of salvation. We could talk about this, the whole sermon, if we wanted to. I encourage you to go to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen this afternoon and, and just study that. That's the key verse, I think, about this. But the, the, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is the gift of God that's made possible through the work of Christ whereby the third person of the Trinity comes and dwells within all who are true followers of Jesus. It happens at the moment of salvation that when we become a Christian, God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. Not only that, but he makes us a part of His of the spiritual body of Christ that's made up of all true believers. We're baptized in the Spirit. It does not... I do not believe, as, as some would teach, that occur at some point after salvation where the Spirit comes in, in more power and, or in some unique and different way. Rather, I think Scripture is clear that the repentance and faith, when we are saved by God, simultaneously He gives us the Holy Spirit fully. Now, I think there's a yieldedness to the, to the Spirit, a fullness of the Spirit that comes as we yield to Him, as we walk lives of holiness and allow His work into our lives. There's certainly times where we grieve the Holy Spirit, where we hinder His work, but that does not mean that He is not fully with all believers. Again, we could talk more about that, but I think the focus is that, that John says that the Messiah's ministry is going to be greater because He is going to come not simply to perform a, an outward sign, that shows an, an, an inward change, but he is actually going to perform the inward change. The baptism in the Spirit is something that's going to happen internally. It's, it's unseen, but it will occur in the lives of those who put their faith in Jesus. The baptism in water was outward. What Jesus does is inward. It's miraculous, and he, he causes the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. What an amazing thing that happens, that the third person of the Trinity who is equal with God, comes and lives and dwells within us when we put our faith in Jesus. That is a greater work than just being baptized with water. But not only that, we're baptized with fire. 
It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what does this mean? One option is to say that this is it refers to the purifying work of the Spirit that happens in the life of a believer. So we think about Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? Uh, Jesus says, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. People are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And what comes down on top of their heads? Tongues of fire. And so this, this, this image of, of purification, it's um, the sanctifying work of the Spirit that begins when we come to Christ and then continues all our lives. It's this inward change uh, rather than an outward sign. Now, I think this is possible, that this is one way to interpret it. And, um, I think that there are many people that would say that that's what it's a reference to. I think it may be better to think of it as actually as a reference to judgment. So that the point that John is making is that Jesus comes to save some from the coming wrath, while others will face it. Uh, fire is a symbol for this coming judgment. This brings about the prophecy of Simeon, remember? That Jesus brings a sword into humanity, and there are those that are baptized in the Spirit, and there are those that will be baptized in fire, in judgment. I think it fits with the context. We think about um, what John says earlier in verse 9. He talks about this axe that's laid at the root of the tree, and the tree is chopped down, and what's happened to that tree? It's thrown into fire. It's, it's this picture of, of judgment. He even talks about how, who warned you to flee from what? From the wrath to come, that there is a judgment that is coming. And then it's followed up here with another illustration. In verse 17, he talks about a winnowing fork. This is a, a shovel-like fork that a farmer would use to pick up the wheat and throw it in the air. And when he threw it in the air, the wheat would drop out and the chaff would blow away and he would separate the wheat and the chaff. And what does he do with the chaff? He burns it. And the phrase there is not just fire, but unquenchable fire. So the winnowing fork separates what is useful from what is useless. And the things that are useless are cast into the fire and they are burned. So he baptizes with fire. All this together, I think, indicates that the ministry of the coming Messiah is one that is, is life to some, and it is death to others. It's marked by the indwelling of the Lord in a way that's been unrealized before, but it's also marked by God coming in justice and punishing with unquenchable fire. Of course, at his first coming, he says that he comes to seek and to save the lost. And in Acts, Jesus says, wait for the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. He will, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mention the fire. The fire is, is to come in his second coming. But what's interesting here is what John says in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. He preached good news. This is good news. That Jesus is coming to baptize some with the Holy Spirit and to punish others with unquenchable fire. That's good news. How is that that good news? I think at least in a couple of ways. One, it's there's hope. One commentator, Robert Stein, says this, The message of repentance is good news, for it means that forgiveness is possible. Persons can still pass from death to life and become part of God's kingdom if they repent. The tragedy and consequences of sin are not irreversible. This is good news. There is, there is hope that we can turn to God. We can escape the fire. We can be baptized with the Spirit. We can come to know Him. There is hope if we will repent. 
The other way it's good news is that there is justice. Another commentator says, Judgment is not at first sight very good news, but it's an integral part of the gospel. Unless we can be sure that in the end, evil will be decisively overthrown, there is no ultimate good news. Justice is good news. A world without justice, where evil is never dealt with, is not good. But true justice is something to rejoice in. In our readings this week, Psalm 67 says this, Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? Why should the nations be glad and sing for joy? The psalmist says, for you judge the peoples with equity. Because God is a just judge and he will judge rightly. Now, let's be clear. Justice is not good news for everyone, is it? Those that will be baptized with fire, this is not good news. It's good news for the wheat. It's not good news for the chaff. And John, with this humble boldness, comes and he proclaims the whole gospel. You know, John could have been pretty content, couldn't he? He had a whole crowd around him. A lot of people that came. And he could have said what he maybe thought they wanted to hear. But he was concerned. He was concerned that they, wouldn't, that, that, that they would know the Christ that he was proclaiming so that they might be saved from the wrath of God. He wasn't content to make people feel comfortable in their religiosity. He wanted them to know the truth. And so too, we as individuals must proclaim the whole gospel, not with condemnation, not with self-righteousness that points a finger, but with, with humility and boldness that sees those that are, that are lost in sin, that are, that are underneath the wrath of God, that they are in danger of of eternal fire, and we proclaim there is hope. If, if you will repent, there is hope that you do not have to face this horrible baptism of judgment. It's not a popular message, but it's a true message. It's not one that's going to win us friends, but it is one that is loving. We proclaim what is true, what is right. And so I proclaim it this morning. I proclaim to you that Jesus has come to make a way back to God, to offer the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was the one that John spoke of. And he has come, he has given his life as a ransom for many, as a sacrifice to pay for your sins and for mine so that we might find new life in him. And he calls us to turn from our sin, to repent, and to turn back to God. And if we do, he says He will give us His Holy Spirit. He will baptize us in the Holy Spirit. He will adopt us as children. He will forgive us of all of our sins. But if we do not, if we reject Him, then the only baptism we face is a baptism of fire. We are the chaff. We are the tree that is burned. But there is hope. So what does a life of humble boldness look like? It, it points to Christ. It proclaims the whole gospel. And finally, a life of humble boldness confronts sin. It confronts sin. Verses 19 and 20 are not chronological. Uh, the arrest of, of John didn't occur immediately after the events of, of verses 1 through 18. There's an overlap between the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus that occurs. But Luke uses this future information in this discussion of John's ministry to, to change the focus. He changes the focus off of John and, and puts it squarely on Jesus. So he kind of wraps up uh, John's story. But these aren't throwaway verses. Uh, rather, they are an, another example of this humble boldness that we've been highlighting. Herod, we talked mentioned last week, he was the, the ruler of the Judean area. We, and uh, it, we had 
we were told here that he has taken his his half brother's wife Herodias as his own wife. Uh, this not only involved um, it, it involved Herod and Herodias divorcing their current spouses so that they could get married, but also underneath the law, this was actually viewed under the category of incest that he would take his brother's wife. And so this is this is pretty wicked stuff. Um, and Herod was a political leader, but he was also a Jewish man. And so John can't sit back idly and watch this guy publicly trash the covenant of marriage and trash God's law, so he, he speaks out. It may have been first to Herod's face. I don't know. Maybe he had an audience with Herod where he told him, Herod, this is wrong. Or it could have been part of his teaching and people came to Herod and said, have you heard about what John the Baptist is saying about you? And so they bring John before Herod and, and John doesn't back down, but he confronts Herod. However it happened, he confronts him and he's clear. It's clear that his, he makes it clear that, that Herod's actions are unacceptable before holy God. This isn't self-righteousness or sensationalism that motivates John, but it's rather the zeal for the glory of God. And so in humble submission to God, he comes before Herod and he says, what you're doing is wrong. Can you imagine that? Think about that. This ruler in the day that has power over John, and John comes to him and says, what you're doing with your brother's wife is wrong. It's sin. It's an offense to God. That's bold. But it's also humble underneath God's hand that he would obey him to do that. So is the principle that we should learn that we should go around confronting everyone's sin? Uh, that we should be morality police. I can remember um, in in grade school, I was a I, I went to church, grew up going to church, and I would go around and I heard people uh, swear. I made sure that they knew that that was wrong. Shouldn't say words like that. I think there was an innocence in that, and I think there's a rightness to that to a certain extent. But I also came to realize, you know, there's a sense in which an unbeliever is not going to act like a believer. Someone who hasn't placed Jesus uh, at, on the throne is not going to act as if he is. Now, so there's a balance. There's a, a balance here where where we need to we need to confront sin, but we also need to understand that that there are those that that are not believers that are not going to act by, like believers in certain ways. But there's a time and a place to confront sin, and we should be willing to humbly and boldly tell our unbelieving friends in love and in truth as opportunities arrive that there is sin in their lives, that, that things that they are doing are wrong in the sight of God. If re Repentance is the first step to coming to Christ, right? To turn from your sins. And we said, if people don't realize that they're sinning, they will never turn. So how do we help them realize that they're sinning? We tell them, that's wrong. That's an offense to God. That is against God's law. You should not be doing that. Now again, it's not this finger waving, it's it's humility, but it takes some boldness to do it. That's to say, this is what God's law is. I'm not telling you what my law is. I'm just telling you what's acceptable before God. And these things are wrong. And if we have this humble boldness, we will we will have a spirit that comes in grace and tells people that they are sinning, that, that God's wrath is against them, but that Jesus has come to offer forgiveness. We should do it with, with unbelieving friends. Beyond that, we should be willing to confront sin in one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, Herod was a Jew. And I think that, that John, in some ways, feels a greater compulsion to go to him and says, hey, this is something that our God 
forbids. If you claim to be a Jew, then you should not be doing this because the law forbids it. And so too, we should call out sin in other brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of their position. Now, we need to follow the right channels. I don't need to stand up here and start calling out your sin, nor do you need to stand up and start telling me all the things that I've done wrong. That would be chaos. There are channels, but there, there is a, a boldness that we need to confront one another and say, this is wrong. This should not be in your life. You need to confess and repent and turn from this. And finally, and I, I think that this is here, I pray it's not a stretch of the text, but I think that not only should we confront it in, in, in unbelieving friends and in brothers and sisters in Christ, but we need to be willing to confront sin in society at large, in the public sphere. Herod was a Jew, but he was also a leader in the land. And John comes into that realm and he, he brings holiness to bear on Herod's life. That's a bold move. It's such a bold move that it cost John his freedom. What's the result of him approaching Herod? He's thrown in prison. And being in prison, what happens later? He gets his head cut off because he stood for holiness, because he went to Herod and said, this is wrong. But his zeal for the Lord necessitated that he do it. He would not sit back and tell Herod what he thought Herod wanted to hear. He told Herod what was true. Now, as we think about the public sphere, I think much of what we stand for as Christians is mocked in society at large. I don't think we need to have a martyr mentality that says, well, everyone needs to accept what we believe. We should recognize if people are not followers of Christ, then they will oppose his law. That's, that's just the nature of sin. We are on the wrong side of a lot of the issues of our day, right? When we talked about sanctity of human life Sunday. We're on the wrong side of that as far as society is concerned. As we stand for life, for most people in secular society, they would say that we're backwards and that we shouldn't talk that way. And as I thought about this, I thought what I think is slowly becoming the largest issue in our day, which is this debate over gay marriage, which is the stand of the church that, that homosexuality, according to Scripture, is sin. That's something that no one really wants to hear. And it's not unlike what, what's going on here. What, is, what does John do? He steps into Herod's personal life. He says, Herod, the person that you're marrying is someone that you shouldn't marry. Now, in our society, what people would say is, hey, that's, that's a personal decision. That's, that's between two people. That's not something for you to step into and say that's right or wrong. But what does John do? He steps in. He says, no, it is wrong according to God's law. And I, I just see the, the, the parallel there too clearly not to mention it. I do think that this is the issue of our day. This is the issue that we will be ridiculed for as believers in the coming days. Do we believe it? Do we stand on God's word and believe that that's what it teaches? Do we, do we see that as sin? If not, we need to study his word and find out, is this something that we're willing to stand on? Because I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that what happened to Herod, that, that, that there may be persecution that's faced for that. There will be persecution that's faced for it. And it, and it may be being thrown in jail. I don't know. We never know where society is going, and, that, and, and we need to be willing to say, I will stand for truth, even if that is the consequence. Surely in other nations, standing for truth results in jail time. Standing for truth results in martyrdom. And so we need to confront sin. Not, not in a way that's self-righteous, not in a finger-pointing way, but with humble boldness, with a zeal for our God, who is holy, holy, holy. We come, we don't tell people our standard. 
We say this is God's surrender. But but we come with the message of hope. We come and say, Jesus has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But if you will turn from your sins, you can flee from the wrath to come. You can become his child by faith and repentance. Jesus calls us to a life like John's. Calls us to a life of humble boldness. What does a life of humble boldness look like? It points to Jesus. Gets out of the way. It's a sign that says he must increase, I must decrease. God gets all the glory, not me. It's a, it's a life that proclaims the whole gospel. That says there is a judgment coming. That speaks of the reality of eternal death. But that calls people and says, if you turn, you will be forgiven. You can find hope in the gospel. And it's a life that confronts sin. It confronts it in our unbelieving friends so that they might turn and know that God forgives. It confronts it in the body of Christ that says we want each other to grow in holiness. And it confronts it as is when it is needed in the public sphere. It says this is what God's standard of holiness is. And that's only possible. The only way that we can live this life is that God has given us his indwelling Holy Spirit. The spirit of power. And, and of love, the spirit that knows when to do, that, that prompts us how to confront and when to confront, that helps us to speak with boldness and without fear, that, that lets us step to the back and, and kill pride and, and push him to the front. It's only by God's spirit working in and through us as it was in John. So may we go from this place in the power of the spirit to serve the Lord with our whole lives in humbleness and in, in, in humility and in, and in boldness. And when we do that, if we've, we've given every part of our lives to Christ, then I pray that we would say, as John would have said, and as the, the, the servants in Luke 17 said, they said, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would... Make us like John, because John was like you. Lord, forgive me for not pointing directly to Christ in this message. But if there's anyone who was humble and bold and perfect harmony, it was, it was you, Lord. As Jesus walked the earth in humility, as, as God, yet he humbled himself even to death. And yet you spoke with such boldness and clarity. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. We want to follow your spirit, uh, to know how to point away from ourselves and to point to you, to know how to confront sin and when to do and to proclaim the truth of the gospel clearly, Lord, with love, humility, clarity, and boldness. Lord, so thank you for being the perfect example of these things, we pray again by the power of your Spirit that you would allow us to walk in this way that you have called us to. Change us by the Spirit that indwells us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.